Hello and welcome to Restoration Church's Teaching of the Week. If this is your first time, welcome. So glad that you were able to join us. If you'd like to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about restoration, you can go to restorationaz.org. And with that said, we hope you enjoy this week's teaching from Landon Myers. Thank you, Amberly. If you are new with us, thanks for joining us. As Amberly said, my name is Landon, and I'm thankful to be one of the, the team members here. And I'm just going to really disappoint you right out of the gate because I'm not actually going to talk about recipes. Um, <laughs> but that is within uh, Exodus 21 through 23, and I encourage you to read that uh, this week. That's our, our passages or our, our chapters this morning. I am not going to read it all to you because, to be kind of frank, it's boring, and we're not going to read all three boring chapters. However, deep within kind of the boring nature of these three chapters, as you study it and reflect and understand what is happening, what God is doing, it's all law. And it's actually really good. It's in the midst of actually kind of mundane, boring chapters like this that I think we can see a different level of consistency and beauty and the depth of what God's character is than maybe in some of the more traditional passages that are taught. And by that, I kind of mean this. If you go on a first date, you're judging your date. Like right out of the gate, there's a first impression, and you're judging and observing and analyzing the person that you go on a date with. If you just aren't even on a date, but you meet somebody for the first time, you're receiving and giving a first impression, and that first impression typically carries a lot of weight. Or if you're in an interview, or you're somebody who is uh, kind of conducting an interview, somebody's on their best behavior, right? In that moment, you would hope they've kind of thought through this and they're going to put their best foot forward and on display. But experts in uh, kind of the interviewing process will typically encourage you not to just sit at a desk and interview someone, but to go do weird, normal things like walk down a street, go to a restaurant, go grocery shopping, go golfing, something to get people out of this like formal interview process and into a more everyday, lifelike moment Because when people are in everyday life-like moments, that's when you actually get to know them. I would maybe suggest that you don't actually get to know somebody until the first time you're bored alongside of them. Like, not they're boring, but you're not together for something spectacular. You're not there for a purpose or an activity or an event. You're just together. That's when you actually get to know what a person is like. And I think the same actually applies to God. As we read Exodus 21 through 23, God has just redeemed and saved his people from oppression and slavery and abuse in Egypt, where they've been for 400 years. They have no idea how to live. Like, their father and his father before that and all the fathers before that for 400 years lived under oppression. They have no idea what a healthy, good life looks like. Now they're freed with no clue how to conduct themselves. And so God provides this law about the everyday stuff of life, how to deal with, how to act, how to have relationships. And again, it's, a lot of it's weird. Some of it seems like it's just not applicable at all or outdated. But when we really study it and dive in, you're going to see that God is consistent and that every single one of his laws brings out good. Exodus 21 
Uh, let me read the first two verses. These are the ordinances that you must set before them. God's about to start a new nation and government. He tells Moses, here's, here's the rules. Here's how to do it well. <clears throat> Verse two, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he is to serve for six years. Then in the seventh, he is to leave as a free man without paying anything. We read things like this and go, well, this is going to be a, a, a week, a sermon really heavy on application because we have a lot to apply from this verse. And there's a lot of other things like this that are not relevant in our cultural moments. In fact, we can read something like this and go, how could God allow or even endorse, perhaps, slavery? It brings up, honestly, really good questions. But when we study a text like this, the law like this, in its original context, we will always see every single time that every single law is about God helping people. It's about God providing dignity and health and value to people. The Israelites had just spent 400 years in slavery in a really ugly, murderous, abusive, oppressive form of it. Even our, our nation's own country is filled with the same. A really evil slavery built into our, our nation's history. This slavery, though, is very different. Notice right out of the gate, when you buy a Hebrew slave, which only could happen when you uh, kind of, there was this relationship and transaction where somebody couldn't pay a debt back or somebody needed really shelter and food. It was for a seven-year period of time. It was explicitly illegal to force anybody into slavery. That was not an option in God's law. But when this happened, it would be for six years, then in the seventh, he is to leave as a free man without paying anything. The, the law continues to say, if at any point the owner harms in any way the slave, that slave's debt is fully paid and they are free to go without paying anything. There's a host of other laws about slavery. Every single one of them is for the benefit of the person who is in the unhealthy, unfavorable situation. All around them, slavery was common, yet God was creating a different way to dignify people that otherwise didn't have any dignity, that would have lost a whole life and instead had a way to pay off a debt in six years. The, the text has a lot of moments like this. We're going to study a few of them specifically. Before that, I want to talk about five kind of overarching themes that we see in God's law. The first is this. God is not legalistic. His laws reflect his character, which always works for the good of people. Oftentimes, because it's been taught in different churches and by teachers, because we misinterpret the text, we view God as this kind of angry old man in the sky that throws down this spiritual scantron test called life, and if you do enough good and get it correct and avoid enough bad and don't put the wrong answers, then you get to avoid this terrible place called hell, and you get to enter this great place called heaven, and that's the purpose of our life on earth, and that's all God really cares about. I've talked before how I think our image of God, too, is like that second grader. I was like this. I was a terrible person. That when you, like, exchanged papers and you graded them in class, you always wanted someone's paper that was going to have a lot of answers wrong because it was fun to put the little red mark. It's not fun to grade someone's paper that had everything right. So we view God, I think, like that. Like, he's just waiting, anticipating that you're going to mess it all up so he can put that little red mark and note it. And that couldn't be farther from the case. God did not make these laws as this kind of awful, arbitrary judgment to just see where you're going to go when you die. That is not 
what this is. God is not legalistic. The second thing we see is that God's laws give clarity and don't keep his people guessing. <clears throat> My daughter right now is obsessed with reading, which is uh, something uh, I'm really grateful for. I think that's kind of like a good obsession of the list of obsessions that could happen. The problem is it is really hard, genuinely, to get her to go to sleep. She will just read for hours and hours and hours, and it's it's kind of too much. I'm like, please go to bed. I want to go to bed. We all need to go to bed. Stop reading, and you can start again tomorrow. Well, what's kind of this interesting phenomenon in our culture right now is you hear all these things about recommendations librarians are making to children, or the books that are in libraries, both in like uh, public school system or the, the public library as a whole. She came home with this book the other day, and my two-year-old asked me to read it to her. She doesn't understand anything in it, so I'm bored after two pages, and I just start saying random words, and my two-year-old's like, this book is great, but... I did pay attention a little bit. The book was horrendous, like what it was instilling. I'm like, this is terrible. Who would recommend this book? I remember being in middle school, uh, just down the street here, reading The Lottery. How many of you read The Lottery? Few. If you are not familiar with it, it's really terrible. I don't know why we make young kids read this, this book. Basically what happens, it's in like the context of a, a rural American town where once a year they have a lottery, the selection system, to see who they will stone to ensure a good harvest for that year. And it's this kind of, we think, fictional account, but it's actually rooted in a lot of truth. Because at the time that the Israelites had left Egypt and were going to form a promised land, all around them, the neighboring nations did this. They would sacrifice children, women, anybody who wasn't probably in a place of power to try and appease the gods, just guessing at what might get the gods to bless them with a good harvest. And so actually, one of my professors pointed this out, and it just changed my whole perspective on the law. When God provided clarity and detailed clarity on what was expected of his people, what he was doing was protecting them from doing really stupid things, like sacrificing their children. It's crazy how perspective shifts what we think of God. We can just read it and go, oh, what a terrible God with all of these endless rules for his people to meet. And instead you go, no, he was freeing his people from sacrificing their loved ones, just hoping it would rain so they'd have some wheat the next year. One of the reasons I think we kind of have this misconception about God that he's super legalistic and has so many rules to test us with is we think that the law is really long. And there's over 600 laws just in the Old Testament that God gives to his people. However, Yahweh's law is really, really, really substantially short compared to the laws we have in our nation. In 2010, the Affordable Care Act was over 2,500 pages long. The, the laws that, that God gives us in the Old Testament don't even like begin to compare to how many laws we have just about how to drive on our streets, let alone business law, taxes, building codes. Out of context, without perspective, you can go, oh my goodness, so many things. Why did God like, just care so much about everything? Well, again, they had had zero good examples of how to relate as families, as neighbors, how to conduct business, how to handle accidents and all kinds of things that would happen. They had no government. And so after 400 years, God goes, here's, here's a list, here's a guide of how to be good neighbors, of how to be good people, of how to live in health and have a good life that I made you for. 
Number four, and this one matters a lot. God does not pretend sin does not exist. Our God is not ignorant. He doesn't come to you with a bunch of guidance as if there's no problems or selfish people in the world. Have you ever received advice from somebody that you didn't ask for, and they have all kinds of brilliant ideas for you, and you go like, yeah, that's all great in theory, and you don't have the slightest idea how real life works? Everybody kind of just chuckled or nodded their head. We've all experienced that. God doesn't do that. He doesn't go, hey, you know what would be great? Try this. I've never tried it. I've never experienced it, but I think it'll work for you. No, Jesus came down onto earth and walked with two legs and lived a life. He experienced everything we've experienced, sin around him everywhere. God understands. He's not an ignorant God. When he made laws and rules and guidance, he did so recognizing there would be sin in the world. And that's good news. He wouldn't be trustworthy if he was ignorant. But again, our God is not ignorant. He meets us in the middle of the mess and gives us guidance through sin, our own and the sin of others that we can't control. Lastly, Yahweh's laws call us to be considerate of our neighbors constantly. To be considerate of our neighbors constantly, and we'll, we'll talk about that more in a few minutes. Through his law, we see that God uh, is good, that every law points to good for people, but we also see a certain list of characteristics from which we can expect certain actions. So while some of these laws don't apply to us at all, we can actually begin to understand what God's character is, and based on his character and actions he took then, we can know what kind of actions he will take now. Something we see in every single law is this. Yahweh is generous, he is merciful, He is wise, he is practical, and just. Every single one of his laws, all 600 plus, will have those characteristics rooted in them and will point to good for people. Let's look at a few examples. Exodus chapter 23, verses 10 and 11. Sow your land for six years and gather its produce. But during the seventh year, you are to let it rest and leave it uncultivated, so that the poor among you may eat from it and the wild animals may consume what they leave. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. We uh, somehow developed a policy over the, the years here. For all the people serving in our kids, there's a lot of people serving in our kids. You see them in sweatshirts and shirts. It takes a lot to, to pull that off. And so there was this, this policy uh, developed that whoever was serving on any given Sunday could go get something from the porch, which is separately owned and operated. And uh, recently, one of the parents whose kids whose kid is like eight years old and serves in our kids, was having this conversation they told me about where their child was like, hey, it's so great. Every time I serve, I get to go get something from the porch. So I want to serve all the time. And they ended up having this conversation about how what they were getting was not actually free. And the parents were like, well, it's not actually free. And the kid, who is a lot like my firstborn, was like, no, mom, it is free. I go and I don't have to pay anything. It's free. And they're like, no, it, it costs something. What do you not understand? It's free. And their parents eventually explained that there's a, a way that this works, that the church actually pays this other business called The Porch to provide and value uh, volunteers, which is all great, but it's not free. 
it's the same here. We can read this and go, oh, cool. There was something free to provide for the poor of the land. That is not what was happening. This was their livelihood. This was their business. This is what they owned. And every seven years, they would not take anything from it but would give. I had a conversation with a guy that, that owns a really large business here in town after last service, and we were laughing. He's like, so every seventh year, this is, this is my takeaway? I'm like, I don't know. I'm not necessarily saying that. But let me reread this. Think about it. Sow your land for six years and gather its produce. But during the seventh, you are to let it rest and leave it uncultivated so that the poor among you may eat from it. There's a cost to that. That is not free. That's extremely costly. Here's what we can take away from that about God's character in every single one of his laws. This law, God's law, always promotes generosity. That's who he is. That's who we're called to be. And it's costly. But that's the type of God our God is. That's the type of people he calls us to be. Next, let's look at Exodus chapter 22, 25 through 27. God says, if you lend money to my people, to the poor person among you, you must not be like a money lender to him. You must not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as collateral, return it to him before sunset. For it is his only covering. It is the clothing for his body. What will he sleep in? And if he cries out to me, I will listen because I am compassionate. Now, this is not a business transaction. This is not our economy with venture capitalism. There were different types of business transactions there. What this is, is somebody in deep need really of survival. And what God is saying is, a person in that place, if you're helping them out, help them out. But what God is saying is, don't use people in need as an opportunity to grow your own wealth and mistreat and oppress and abuse them. If you're going to help, help. God's laws promote mercy. Next, we see that that God's laws are also wise. Look at chapter 22, verses 1 through 4. When a man steals an ox or a sheep and butchers it or sells it, notice this, just to kind of make a, a point again from earlier. God is not ignorant. He's not like, hey, if ever anything bad happens in your life, like somebody steals an ox, here's what you should do. He goes, when people do selfish, sinful, dumb things, Because it's going to happen. When a man steals an ox or a sheep and butchers it or sells it, he must repay five cattle for the single ox or four sheep for the single sheep. If a thief is caught in the act of breaking in and he is beaten to death, no one is guilty of bloodshed. But if this happens after sunrise, there is guilt of bloodshed. A thief must make full restitution. If he is unable, he is to be sold because of his theft. If what was stolen, whether ox, donkey, or sheep, is actually found alive in his possession, he must repay double. So there's all kinds of different scenarios covered there. This is wise, though, because it disincentivizes people from stealing. If the only punishment was to return what they attempted to steal, there would be no reason to not steal. But there's a whole list of specifications disincentivizing people from attempting to steal. That's just wise. Ironically, we don't seem to to get that often in our country based on the state you live in, which is why so many people are moving to Arizona. It's fascinating. Next, Exodus chapter 22, uh, verses 5 through 6. When a man lets a field or vineyard be grazed in, 
and then allows his animals to go and graze in someone else's field, he must repay with the best of his own field or vineyard. When a fire gets out of control, spreads to thorn bushes and consumes stacks of cut grain, standing grain, or a field, the one who started the fire must make full restitution for what was burned. That's just practical. Elsewhere in these three chapters, you'll see if somebody unintentionally or intentionally injures another person and they can't work, they don't just pay for the harm done in the physician's bill. They also have to pay for the time without work. God's laws are just practical. This is kind of boring, mundane, everyday, stuff-of-life, good-living guidance. Lastly, we see that God's laws are just. Look at Exodus 23, verses 1 through 9. As I read this, this might be controversial and unhelpful, what I would love for you to do is think about would the left side of our political system and arrangement agree with these things or disagree? As I read this, think about would the right side of our political arrangement and system agree or disagree with these things? Here we go. 23.1. You must not spread a false report. Do not join the wicked to be a malicious witness. You must not follow a crowd in wrongdoing. Do not testify in a lawsuit and go along with a crowd to pervert justice. Do not show favoritism to a poor person in his lawsuit. If you come across your enemies, stray, ox, or donkey, you must return it to him. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you lying helpless under its load and you want to refrain from helping it, you must help with it. That is hysterical. God's law kind of guides us on how to deal with our own emotions. If you see someone who hates you, which probably means they've done wrong to you, and they're having a problem, and you don't want to help them, like it specifies that, you need to help them. Like that's the way of Jesus. You must not deny justice to a poor person among you in his lawsuit. That one intrigues me. I love this. Before we read, uh, do not show favoritism to a poor person in his lawsuit. Now we read, you must not deny justice to a poor person among you in his lawsuit. Verse 7, stay far away from a false accusation. Do not kill the innocent and the just, because I will not justify the guilty. You must not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and corrupts the words of the righteous. You must not oppress a foreign resident. You yourselves know how it feels to be a foreigner, because you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. That is a beautiful passage. I wish we would adopt a whole lot more of that heart in our country, of the simplicity, of the wisdom, of the mercy, of the grace, of the justice. And of the question I asked you earlier, the left would agree with a whole lot there. And the left would also riot about a whole lot there. And the right would agree with a whole lot there. And the right would probably also riot about a whole lot there. That's worth noting, I think. What does that mean? Discernment is required. Do our laws seek what is good for people? Are they merciful? That's not enough because they also need to be just. Are they generous? That's not enough because they also need to be practical and wise. This is what the law that God provided for his people after they had experienced deep unhealth provides. Well, what we see in these chapters Number one is that Yahweh's laws are just really, deeply, truly good. 
Number two, though, again, there's these lists of characteristics in every single one of these laws. God is generous. God is merciful. God is wise. God is practical. And he is just. That's takeaway number one for us. Yet, there is actually an action step to this. These laws call us to reflect the character of our God, which means we also should be generous and merciful and wise and practical and just in how we live and how we vote. That should be the formula, not necessarily a party. And how we work to get new legislation in place. Are we considering things in this way? That's the call. If I were to, to summarize all of this in one word, the word would be considerate. We are called to be a considerate people. But our natural inclination, by our, I mean you and me, all of us, our natural inclination is to consider ourselves. That is what our go-to move is. We consider our own bank accounts. We consider our own schedules and calendars. We consider our own homes and spaces and yards and neighborhoods and school districts. We're really good at considering ourselves a lot. But later in this week, though it's boring, I decided in the middle of last service when I'm trying to get my oldest daughter to sleep because she's reading so much, I'm gonna have her read this. I think it will work. She'll go right to sleep. <laughs> but I encourage you to read it later and process those questions. What does this do for people? How does it bring about dignity? How is it considerate? If I can be super cheesy for a moment, let's break this considerate word down. It's not spelled this way, but if we break it down into two words, consider it. <laughs> consider it what? The good of your neighbor. That's what every single one of these laws, that's what every single thing our God does leads us into. Considering the good, not just of ourselves, but actually first and foremost of our neighbor, even if that neighbor is one of our enemies, and you don't want to help their donkey when their donkey's load is too much. It still says do it. Consider it. So when you buy some land and you build a home on it, don't just consider what you want. Consider what is good for your neighbor. When you make an adjustment to your landscaping, don't just consider what's going to be good for you. Consider your neighbor. When you park and we're, we're, theor we're theoretically supposed to do something crazy. We're supposed to park in between the two lines with as close to an equal amount of space as possible so people can open their doors. When you don't do that, consider the good of your neighbor. When you're in a line at the grocery store and you're rushed to pick which one you're going to go into or to scoot in front of the other person real quickly, are you considering it what is good for you or are you considering the good of your neighbor? What the laws here, all 600 something of them do, is cause us to practice a different way of consideration. What if in the big decisions and the little decisions, every single time we had that filter, what is good for my neighbor and have I considered that? What if we did that as a church family? for nine months? 
What if that changed the reputation of the church? Talk about this often, from being hypocritical and judgmental to being absurdly good, considerate neighbors. What if your neighbors considered your good in the decisions they made? How fast you drive down the street, whatever it is. That would change the perspective of the church, which would actually change the perspective of Jesus, which the world desperately needs. That's my hoped for outcome as we study these three seemingly boring, out-of-date chapters that are actually filled with deep beauty, that we can begin to practice one little or big decision at a time to consider it, the good of my neighbor, not just myself. As we uh, close, we're going to transition and and take communion, because I don't want to stop with something for you to do. The gospel should never be first and foremost about our actions or the information we take in or the things we do, but rather, it's about the power we have in Christ to go be who he's made us and saved us to be. And so when I say be considerate, what we need to recognize is that what allows us to be considerate, what gives us the power to be considerate, is that God has never for one moment stopped considering what is good for you. In the good moments in your life, guess what God is considering? What is good for you? In the moments of the deepest and darkest sin in your life, God is considering your good. In the moments of rebellion or confusion or question you have with God, God is considering your good. When he was in the garden before being crucified willingly as he sweat or cried these bloody tears, guess what he was doing? Considering your good and the good of your neighbor. You know what that means we can do? We're actually freed from having to be considerate of ourselves all the time from constantly thinking about our own accounts and schedules and calendars and wants and dreams and worries. Why? Well, because the almighty, good, all-powerful God of the universe who knows every little thing about you, he's considering your good always. And it's better for you that he considers your good than you consider your own good. And therefore, we're freed to not obsessively consider our own good all the time, but actually to consider the good of our neighbors. Thanks for joining us. Once again, we are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona, and we are so thankful that you were able to tune in. If this is your first time, welcome. Uh, Jump over to restorationaz.org to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about who we are and what we're about. Um, If you have questions or if you'd like to connect with us, um, go ahead and hit that contact tab. We'd love to connect with you. And uh, until next time, remember... Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.